Well, church, this, this morning, it's wonderful to spend time together again. I know we've had a few uh, zoomological hiccups this morning. Thank you for your kindness in persisting, and uh, we're grateful for it. Uh, there is certainly a learning curve in all of this, and, and I'm still on the front edge of it. There's a lot of great people helping out, and uh, we just appreciate your generosity in kind of uh, putting up with us as we learn. Uh, you'll notice we have a new mic. Isn't it wonderful? Hopefully you can hear uh, well this week, and uh, be forewarned, it's possible I'll grab it and bust out in song. We'll see what happens. This morning, in terms of the sermon, we will be together in Acts chapter 3. So wherever you are, would you pull out a Bible or an app and turn with me there to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3. Uh, brothers and sisters, we are working our way on Sundays virtually through this book called Acts. Acts is about the triumph of God's word. It's an incredibly encouraging book. We planned over a year ago to be in this book right now. Little did any of us know how much we would need weekly words of encouragement and hope. And that's what Acts gives us. If you're new to the Bible, Acts is where you head to learn what happened in the few decades after Jesus' resurrection. It's the book that explains why there's millions of churches around the world, like this one. It's the book that describes how it came to be that there are so many Christians in the world today. It's also the book we go to learn, to learn about how anyone, friend, even you, how anyone can be made right with God and be filled with a joy that is unshakable. We'll be studying events today that occurred in the first century in Jerusalem. And yet, we Christians believe that there is, of course, meaning in these events that's ever powerful for us in our own today. Now, church, the last couple of weeks we've been in Acts chapter 2 where we studied a supernatural event followed by a sermon that labored to explain what that event meant. And as we turn to Acts chapter 3 today, you'll notice the same pattern. There's a miracle that took place, followed by a message that explains that miracle. Same thing in chapter 2 as we have now in chapter 3. Now, as we go through this text today, you may have questions come to mind. We're planning to try a new feature today of our virtual gathering after the benediction, so at the very end, those of you who want to stay around a few more minutes will be trying to answer some questions that come in. So if there's things that the passage raises or that I try to describe that you just like to know more about, then you can submit a question by hovering at the bottom of your screen and clicking where it says Q&A, send in a question, and we'll get to a few of those together after the gathering. Look forward to hearing from you in that way. Now this passage this morning breaks down nicely into two parts. There's a wonder and there's a word. There's a wonder and there's a word. We'll consider both this morning. Katie DeVoe, who is participating from her house, is going to read for us the first 10 verses. Now as Katie reads, I wanna encourage you 
to imagine yourself being present there, watching these events unfold. Katie, will you read for us? Thanks, Katie. Well, the miracle we've just heard about, it began with Peter and John. These are two of the apostles helping to lead the church under the lordship of Jesus Christ. They were headed to, to the temple at the customary hour of prayer. Just outside one of the gates, there was a crippled man, unnamed. For his entire life, this man had been unable to walk. He had some sort of birth defect that rendered him disabled in a most significant way. Now, in the ancient world, there was, of course, no, no modern helps. There was uh, no social security, no disability insurance, no modern medicine, no ADA compliance making it easier to get around. No electric wheelchairs. Nothing. That meant that if you were deformed or chronically disabled, not only did you have to deal with the physical anguish of your disease, you also had an attendant poverty. Day after day, this unnamed man was carried on a mat, probably by family members, and sat down at one of the gates outside the temple. And there, from sunup to sundown, he laid. He, he laid simply begging that as people went into the temple to worship, they would toss him a few coins so that he could survive. And if people didn't give, he didn't eat. And of course, if he didn't eat for long enough, He'd die. Imagine all the stares, all the moments of disregard, all the condescending looks this man endured. Imagine the filth covering his broken body. Imagine the pain, not only of his body, but of his soul. 
Brothers and sisters, one of the most difficult kinds of suffering is the kind that doesn't seem to have an end, the kind that just goes on and on and on. That kind of suffering clung to this man. But then came along Peter and John. The crippled man, perhaps he had a small uh, copper or, or, or ceramic mug of some kind, and he, he lifted it up, alms, alms, alms. Now, I think one of the more shocking parts of this story is that Peter and John stopped. They, they didn't keep going. They didn't rush past him in a huff of superiority. Now, remember, even at this very early moment in the church's history, Peter and John are already some of the most significant leaders in existence. These are among the most important people in the city of Jerusalem. And they are headed with all their leadership into the temple to pray. But they stopped. Don't miss that they're on their way to do something important. They're off to do God's work. They're off to pray. What can be more important than that? And yet, in a moment of kindness and compassion, they stopped. They turned aside from what they were headed to do to notice the crippled man. Friends, Peter and John stopping reminds us that Jesus is for the downcast and the broken. Jesus' gaze is on the humble, the busted, the vulnerable, the lame, the poor, the sick, the weak. And if that's true of Jesus, then it ought to be true of every Jesus follower. We who have been rescued from sin by the grace of God of all people ought to be most accustomed to showing that grace and kindness to others. Let's make sure in this time of crisis, as we all are more aware of our own need, that we are also more aware of the needs of others, like Peter and John were that day. Now, Peter, no doubt moved by the Holy Spirit, looked at this man, and he said essentially to him, I don't have any money, but I will give you what I do have. Reminds me of the story I heard of a pastor whose church was full of college students, in many ways like ours. One day in the offering plate, somebody put a McDonald's bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit, and written on the wrapper of that bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit were these words, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. Peter had something far better than a few coins or a McDonald's breakfast to give that man. You see, as an apostle, Peter had been given a special authority by Jesus, along with all the other apostles, to do signs and wonders that testified to Jesus's continued miraculous work. They, they announced that Jesus was still alive and well, not only in word, but in deed. And so Peter told the man, get up. He took him by the hand and miraculously that man was healed. Now notice the little detail. It was God, it was Jesus who healed the man. 
But that healing came through the hand of Peter. Christ's power, Peter's hand. This is so often how the Lord works. He works through his people to bring about good for others. Maybe you're experiencing that in fresh ways in the circumstances that we're in. A gift of groceries on the porch delivered from the hands of a brother or sister in Christ, but coming through the power of our Lord Jesus. Now take that miracle in. This man who his entire life had never stood, never run, never skipped, never jumped, never gone anywhere except for the kindness of others lugging him around. This man miraculously was healed. He could run and jump, dance. Would have been incredible to see this. And probably for the very first time, notice that the passage says, with a profound sense of wonder at what God had done for him, he entered the temple with Peter and with John. Now, this, of course, happened out in the public. Everybody saw it. And everybody knew this guy. We don't know his name, but they did. He had been seen on the mat outside the gate for years. And so all his running and shouting and singing praises to God and dancing around Peter and John, coming into the temple where he had not been permitted to go, all of this drew the attention of the crowd. And you can imagine the scene. It's not hard to picture it. People rushing by the dozens to come and look closely and see this man for themselves. Peter, as was often the case, Peter took notice of what was happening around him and he boldly stood up to speak. And that speaking is the rest of our passage for this morning. That speaking is his sermon. There was first this wonder, this miracle, and then there was a word. And it's to that word that we now turn. Now, as you look in your Bibles, as you glance down through verses 11 to 26, you'll notice this is rather a long sermon. There's way more here than we could ever study together in the remaining time that we have together in any significant, in-depth way. So I want to encourage you this week to call up a friend or FaceTime with somebody you're discipling or schedule a time to, to sit down with your roommate and look at these passages more closely. Or families, gather together around the table at a meal and spend some more time in it together. There's more gold to mine than we could ever draw out in these few minutes that we have left. But let's at least get started together. Follow with me, if you would, in verse 11. It says, while he, that's the man who had been healed, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder 
at this. Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are all witnesses. And you, and and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Church, Peter's dominant point in this beginning portion of his sermon is that the source of the healing was not his, nor was it John's. These disciples didn't have some magical powers, nor were they the precursor of modern-day superheroes. No, God, Jesus, was the source of the healing. Jesus healed the crippled man. As we think about how Peter's logic works in this paragraph, we see that he made this point on two fronts. Number one, he talked about the glory of Jesus Christ. And number two, he talked about the sinfulness of people. If you're someone who writes in your Bible or you're taking notes, then let's go through these verses again and look and circle all the ways these verses describe or talk about Jesus. Here, he is displayed in all his glory. Let me show you what I mean. If you look back in verse 12, if you're taking notes with me or circling in your Bibles, you could circle that word servant. Jesus is the suffering servant. Beloved, in God's great plan, Jesus came and he lived a life of hardship. And he died as a substitute for sinners. That's the first way Peter described him. Now look down at verse 14 and circle the word holy and circle the two words righteous one. Church, this means that Jesus lived a life of obedience. The life you and I are meant to live but haven't. And righteousness means that he has right standing with God. And then look at the next verse, verse 15. Circle the phrase, the author of life. And then look further in the verse and circle the word raised. Jesus is the author of life and paradoxically, he's the one who died for our sin and was raised by God. Now hear that closely. Jesus is the author, he's the originator, he's the founder of life itself. And yet in the great mystery and providence of the gospel, he is also the one who allowed himself to be given over to death. He gave up his life in order that we would have it. And then look in verse 16 and circle where it says, his name. When the scriptures talk about the name of God, what it's calling on is more than simply the sound that we hear when someone says Jesus. 
No, it's a much bigger bucket than that. What's being called on is nothing less than the character, the reputation, the power, the authority. Everything Jesus is and everything Jesus has done is gathered together in that one simple word, name. Peter is carefully pointing out that there is great might in the name of Jesus. Church, this is but a tiny snapshot of the glory of Jesus Christ. I encourage you in the coming days this week that you take some time with, again, with a family member or a friend and go through the second paragraph, the one we'll read in a few minutes, and do the same thing. Simply circle all the places that Jesus is referred to and spend some time meditating on what those reference and mean and describe for us about Jesus. You'll find words like prophet. You'll find ideas referenced like king and seed of Abraham. But for now, let's look back again at those first five verses, 11 through 16. These verses describe, you see, not only the glory of King Jesus, but in distinction, they also describe the sinfulness of people. In verse 13, it says that they delivered, you could circle that word, and that they denied. This is referencing the fact that in the first century in Jerusalem, in the 30s, Jesus was physically delivered over and denied. Then in verse 14, you'll see that word again, denied, and the word asked. And then in verse 15, the word killed. Brothers and sisters, the first audience of Peter's sermon was made up of Jewish people living in Jerusalem. That's who Peter was talking to. But what Peter was saying to them Peter is also saying to us. You see, everyone has sinned and fallen short of giving God the glory that is his. And so this means, friends, that we are all culpable. We all are guilty. Jesus bore our punishment. And so as hard as this is to hear, we must hear what the word says. We denied the Holy and Righteous One. We traded Him for others. We delivered Him to death. We killed the author of life. You killed the author of life. Imagine being wheeled into the ICU with a serious respiratory failure due to COVID-19. Your only hope is a respirator or ventilator. Something outside of you. Something with a power that you don't have. Something committed to doing for you what you can't do for yourself. Yet as it is brought in, you somehow muster up the strength to spit at it, to kick it off the cart as it's wheeled towards you to get up out of bed and stomp on it. 
to kill it. You've just destroyed your only hope of physical life. Death is now certain. Church, that's what every person has done to their only hope of spiritual life. We killed our spiritual ventilator. He died. But there is a power that is greater than death. There is a power that couldn't keep Jesus in the grave. Hear how Peter talks about him in this next paragraph. Look with me at verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are sons of the prophet and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Peter, in this paragraph, has reached back into what we today would call the Old Testament, and he's, he's pulled together all the themes, the major ones, that get at the significance of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It's incredible. And verse 19 is the high point of Peter's sermon. Now I realize you've been staring at your TV or your tablet for quite a while now. Boy, this is much more difficult than doing this in person, isn't it? But I wanna thank you for trying, for, for laboring, for spending the effort some of you are in rooms where you're all alone and you really wish that there were others with you. Some of you are in rooms with crazy kids yanking on your hair and throwing grapes at your head and you wish you were alone. But wherever you are and whatever the circumstances, would you say a quick little prayer asking God to help you focus now? Because everything we've talked about so far is simply preparatory for what we want to look at in verse 19. It is the high point of Peter's sermon. Lord, would you help us? By means of your spirit, would you give us ears to hear? In Jesus' name. In the middle of all of these truths showing 
that the Old Testament all along has been about Jesus, Peter tells us how to respond. He tells us what to do when we come to see something of the glory of Christ and the sinfulness of people. He tells us the demand of the gospel to respond. These, we might say, are the blessings of repentance. Or if we would put it in the form of a question, why turn from sin and turn to Jesus? Why give up, quote, control of your own life and trust him? Friend, if you've never responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ by placing faith in Jesus, then I want to talk especially to you. And of course, then by implication, I'm talking also to Christians because the way we respond to Jesus in the moment we, come, we become Christians is also the way we continue to respond in everyday life. So really, this is for everybody. But if you look in verses 19 and 20, you'll see that there are three blessings of repentance. Number one, in verse 19, we're told that if we respond to the gospel, that sins may be blotted out. Number two, in verse 20, we're told that times of refreshing may come. And number three, at the end of verse 20, we're told that God may send the Christ appointed for you. Now, I wish that I had some way of leaping through the screen and looking at all of you eyeball to eyeball because this is the most thrilling news you could hear. Let's look at the first one. That sins may be blotted out. Friend, to have your sins blotted out is simply to have them wiped away. It's to become clean. The ancient form of writing was really a kind of writing that actually sat on top of the paper. And so it was possible to come by with something wet and to wipe off the paper to make it clean. And the picture here is that in the grace of God, Jesus's death counts as your death. And Jesus, therefore, wipes away your sin. The death of Jesus is the divine disinfectant for the eternally lethal virus of sin. This miracle of our sins being blotted out is God's work, not ours. Contrary to what so many religions teach, you can't do enough to wipe away those sins yourself. This must be something God does. In the book of Isaiah, back in the Old Testament, it says in chapter 43, verse 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That's God talking. And then the next chapter, Isaiah 44, verse 22, says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Christian, if you have responded to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, then your sins have been blotted out. This means they are never held against you again. This means that regardless of what you have done this week, 
what you have said this morning, what you have pondered in your heart. Eternally before God, your position is one of purity. Your sins have been blotted out. Hallelujah. Now, look at the second blessing, because as good as the first one is, the second is even better. The second blessing that comes from repentance is spiritual refreshment. The gospel provides a relief of the burden of being under sin and under condemnation. The gospel gives and acts as a soothing balm of grace, and it provides a deep spiritual rest. Friend, when someone turns from sin and turns to Jesus, they move from a place of being in spiritual agony and endless toil, clamoring through idolatry to find peace. And yet in Jesus, there is a eternal rest. My dear friends, consider the kindness of God that providentially we would be hearing of a ceasing of striving today. Circumstantially, we have every reason right now to be anxious, to be afraid, to be toiling. Life as we know it is seemingly over. No wonder so many of us are struggling with anxiety and worry and fear. So many of us, our minds are racing and our hearts are not at rest. It's understandable. And yet, providentially, we are seeing here this morning, beloved, that we don't need to fret. We don't need to worry. We don't need to fear. We don't need to strive. Because today, we have access to spiritual refreshment, to gospel peace, to acceptance with God. Now, if you look carefully at verse 20, you'll see where this refreshment comes from. It comes from the presence of the Lord Jesus himself. This is the greatest miracle of all. You see, church, in the gospel, we get not only the forgiveness of sin, which we talk so much about, but we get something even better. We get God. We get union with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the, the forgiveness of, of sin is great, but the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ is far greater. To be a Christian means that Christ is in you, and you are in Christ, and the Holy Spirit has taken residence in you. This means that you're never alone. This means that there is resurrection power from within because the Lord Jesus is with you. Friends, what news that is for today. We get God. God loves you, Christian. Now finally, look at the 
the third blessing of repentance. It's that last part of verse 20. This is a reference to Christ being appointed in order that he would one day return. This is referencing the second coming of Christ. Church, one day Jesus will return to fully realize all the promises of God. And today we're given God's guarantee that the story will be completed. One day, King Jesus will return. One day, all will be right. One day there'll be no more virus, no more sin, no more death, no more fear. As one of the kids' Bibles, I remember Jill and I reading to our two when they were young. One day everything sad will come untrue. Friends, that's what will happen when Jesus returns. This third and final blessing of repentance is about something that's yet to come. It's about the day that Jesus will come back for us. Now, understanding the relationship between these three blessings, sin blotted out, presence of Jesus today in us by means of the Spirit, and the future coming, the return of Jesus. Understanding how those things work together is the key to rightly thinking about the pandemic that has us under a stay-at-home order. Let me explain. Just give me a few more moments. Christian, already your sins have been blotted out. Already, times of refreshing have been given to us by God. Yes, we have to choose to sort of plug ourselves back into that power source. And that's what we do when we pray, when we read scripture, when we confess sin, when we call a brother, sister in Christ and say, I need help, would you listen and comfort me? All of these ways, we are tapping back into the Lord Jesus Christ within us. But that power is already there. The Spirit continues the ministry of Jesus from within, and he does so today. But that's only the first two of those blessings. That third blessing of, re of repentance is still to come. We're still waiting for the final day when Jesus will return. This means, of course, that we still long for evil to be forever banished. We still yearn to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. Today, we might say we live in the gap between what Christ has already done and given us and what will happen when he returns to consummate his kingdom. And it's in that gap that we now live. And church, in that gap, some, some like that crippled man that Peter and John came across, some are healed. But others die without ever walking. Some long to be married, but they will always sleep alone. Some will get COVID-19 and recover, while others won't come back. They'll die alone. From everyone they love, they will be separated. 
Some will lose their jobs. Others will have plenty of work. This is the reality of life in the gap. That's not easy. We need not pretend that it is. It is okay that we weep, that we struggle, that we doubt. But brothers and sisters, as Job said so long ago, should we accept only good things from the hand of God and not anything bad? One day our king will return and all shall be well. But today, today we live between the first two blessings already being given to us and the third being promised but not yet realized. And so we groan and we struggle. Yet by God's grace, we trust. That doesn't mean we understand everything, but it means that again and again and again through the struggle, as we read God's word, as we pray, as we sing, as we weep, as we lift each other up, then we arrive again and again and again, able to sit down in the peace that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that God is sovereignly working all things for good. Yes, he's using even these days. This is our confidence in the gap, Church on Mill. And I pray that we would say with Habakkuk, these most compelling words. Even though the fig trees should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. And I might add, the bank account runs empty. Grandma, gets COVID-19. You can't leave your house and go to school. Everyone you know doesn't want to be near you. Every moment you turn on the news, something else bad has happened. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. Brothers and sisters, that's what we have access to because Christ is within.